morning. Hey, it's great to have you guys with us today. And if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Miraculous Births. And what we're looking at is miraculous births in the Bible as we lead up to the birth we're going to talk about coming up this weekend, right? On Christmas Eve, the birth of Christ. But today I want to talk to you about a birth that most people would never think about. So turn to your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts 2, verse 41. Okay, so one of the goals of parents, right, as you begin to have kids get older and they leave the house, the goal is, is to have a strong enough relationship with them that they want to come back and hang out with you even when they're gone. That's the goal, right? Like you want to have that relationship with them. Because you can't dictate their faith. You can put all the inputs in you want to. Outputs won't matter. You can bring them to church every Sunday. That You have no control over that. You have no control over the career that they choose. They have to choose their own path. There's so much you don't have any control over. But the one thing that is so key for parents is to have that type of relationship. And Andy Stanley coined that phrase, they have such a strong relationship with them that when they leave one day, they want to come back. Well, um, that's kind of the relationship I ended up having with my dad. We had a very tumultuous relationship as uh, growing up. We were oil and water. We didn't mix. Uh, but eventually, as my dad got older, I loved to come back and have steaks with him and eat with him. But my dad had to talk with me one day. After I gave my life to Christ, I came back home from East Carolina University. I was kicked out of their band, said you could not come back ever again. I uh, don't need to go into the details of that. I came home, I gave my life to Christ, and I played in a Christian band. And for four years, I pretty much played in that band. I worked at his concrete company, and I took online courses on and off from Liberty. And I never forget, my dad said, son, I need to talk with you. And he was a very, like, stern businessman. But anytime he had to, like, correct me on stuff, it really was hard for him. Like, it was just, one time he wrote me a letter. He had to fire me from his company. And he wrote a, he wrote a letter. Like, this strong, stern, you know, Seagram's drinking businessman. He does write a letter to me. Um, and he sat me down uh, when I was around 23, 24 years old. He said, son, he says, um, it's time to fly the nest. He said, I've supported you in this band. And he didn't like the band. He didn't like the music. He didn't like anything about it. He, he didn't like my piercings. He didn't like my tattoo. He didn't like anything. He didn't even like Jesus. So follow that in. He said, but he said, I've supported you. He said, but it's time to, to go fly the nest. He says, I don't want you 30 years old living at home. He says, you need to go have a life for yourself. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. And we talked about a strategic plan to, to be able to shut down my band, which is the hardest thing I'd done at that point in my life, and then transition to what I felt God was calling me to, which was vocational ministry, right? And so my dad did that. He got, and his greatest joy was to get me through college and to get me out of the house. And his greatest joy was, don't you ever come back to this town ever again and live. Like he would not, he said, I never want to see you back because it was such a small town and people just went there and it was just, there's nothing there. And he wanted to see me succeed in life and get out. And I'm telling you, as the, the, the more that I did in life, and the more I got out through, the more proud he was of me. But you know what I always did? I always came back home and I had steak with my dad. He cooked it on a charcoal grill, a little small grill that he had. And I'd go down to Wendy's, I'd get the baked potato and the salad because he hated making the salads. I get that. And we would watch NC State football or basketball games on a little TV at his bar, and we would eat and hang out. And when I got done, I would go back to where my family was and where I, what I was doing in ministry, and he was so excited for that. Today, what I want to do with you, I think our Heavenly Father wants to have the talk with us, and not that talk, right? Some of y'all thinking, well, you know, he wants to have the talk with you. And I'm not, I'm not talking about leaving your physical house, but 
there's a talk that I want to have. And as you look at the church in the book of Acts, our Heavenly Father wanted to have the same talk with them as well. So if you think about the book of Acts, Luke wrote this book. It's a great history. 30 years it spans. When you read the book of Acts, it's 30 years. Luke was a doctor, and his whole goal was to carefully research and document everything, leading from the life of Christ, the gospel of Luke, and he wrote a second letter, which is the book of Acts. And again, as a a doctor and historian, it was all about facts. Not only that, halfway through the letter, he he joined Paul on the missionary journeys, and so he documents everything that happened. And so when you jump into the book of Acts, here's where it jumps in at. You have Jesus who is um, risen from the dead, and he, is, and, and he is walking around for 40 days. He hangs out with the disciples. He didn't go straight to heaven after he rose from the dead. 40 days he's hanging out with them. He's teaching them. He's pouring into them. And then after that, in Acts chapter uh, 1, he then ascends to heaven, and they see him going up in the clouds. But right before he does that, he tells them a few very important things. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit, for the promise of the Father. Go to the upper room and pray. And then he tells them this. He says, I want you to go and be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit's power comes on you, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. Don't miss the progression. We're going into the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. So what happens? They go to the upper room. The Feast of Pentecost, which is one of the Jewish feasts, one of the big three every year, they all gather together. It's 50 days after Easter. They're worshiping, and the Holy Spirit fills the upper room. And what happened was miraculous there. This is the birth of the church. That upper room, Jesus wasn't the birth of the church. You've got to understand that. It's when the Holy Spirit came, and he infilled believers. And when he did, people begin to, like, like they begin to speak in tongues. People think that's just gibberish, and it's like, rah, 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 rah. What happened there was phenomenal because they began to speak in tongues. It was there, it was languages from across the world. Because at, at Pentecost or Passover or Tabernacles, one of the three major Jewish feasts, all these Jews from across that area, from different lands and languages, would all come in to worship. And some of them didn't speak Aramaic and didn't speak the language or Greek. And so they would come in and they all were gathering and they began to hear these people speaking in their own language. Okay, so imagine now if you had somebody who was Hispanic and spoke Spanish, somebody who uh, spoke Portuguese, somebody who spoke French, and they're all gathering, and they begin to hear the gospel in their own language. Those people heard it, and they were wondering what's going on. They said, man, they must be drunk. What is happening? And Peter preaches. And when he preaches, he preaches a gospel message. Man, he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. He tells them, you must repent. They've never been told to repent. Jews Jews didn't need to repent, right? And then be baptized. Jews didn't get baptized. Gentiles didn't become Jews. And then he says this, in the name of Jesus. Now, he didn't have to say Father and and, and Spirit because they believed. That was Jewish theology. They believed in the God, the Father, and God, the Spirit. They didn't know the Son. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus for remission of sins. He preaches this, and man... 3,000 get saved in one day, and the birth of the church takes over. And I want to read to you from Acts 2.41 what happens from that point forward. It says in Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a powerful sermon. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. This just sounds like a fairy tale, right? Just sounds beautiful. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now just pay attention to some of the language here. The Jewish temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number those uh, daily those who were being saved. That sounds amazing, and it was, right? Here is the problem, though. They didn't want to leave there. Jesus didn't say, it's going to be awesome. You're going to minister to Jews because they're just like you. And, man, they have all the customs, and they'll readily receive your message because they're already waiting for Messiah. They'll understand resurrection. Like, they understand all these concepts. And I want you just to, then just to be great Jewish Christians. That's all you're going to do. That's not what he told them, was it? He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And that's where they're, they're at. So Jerusalem's good, correct? Let's don't, let's don't get that wrong. They're enjoying favor. The church is growing. Things are great. But he said, I need you to go to Judea which is a little, little further out, right? There's people who um, are, are still like you, but maybe a little different. Then he says, I want you to go to Samaria, which there are people they hated in Samaria. They still had the similar religion. The, the Samaritans still believed in the first five books of the Bible, had their own kind of version of it. They still believed in Messiah. They kinda, but Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Huge racial divide. He says, I want you to go there. And then it got worse. He said, I want you to go to the outer parts of the earth. That's pagans who have nothing in common with you. Don't believe, never heard probably of Messiah. May not believe in one God. He says, that's what I want you to do. But what you're going to see, what we're going to look at today is at the birth of the church, it was beautiful, but they decided to stay right there in Jerusalem. And here's what you and I have to understand about the mission of the church when Jesus birthed it, is that God gathers us to scatter us. God gathers us to scatter. He gathered them in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. People heard the gospel. People get it, got saved. But they wanted to stay in their bubble. And God said, that's never my intention for you, is not to stay around people that you like, people that are just like you, that look like you, the same color skin. He says, I want you to go out and the gospel must go. And they refused to do it. They created a bubble there. And I want you to see what happens. Persecution begins to come. Not resistance. We have resistance in America against Christianity. Never confuse persecution and resistance. Persecution is they kill your family. Resistance is they don't like your store, may not shop at it. It can go both ways, right? Come on, y'all. Persecution is you get beat up. Arms chopped off like what's happening over in Africa. Resistance, they had persecution happen in the early church, and God allowed it. And the persecution came from within the Jews. It was a guy named Saul, and you've heard the story, where he was one of the leading chief priests of, of Judaism. And he was going to take over all of it for Gamaliel, and he comes in, and he starts killing Christians. He has orders, all he did every day. I mean, he woke up for breakfast, he's like, I'm going to kill a Christian. For, for, for lunch, I think I'll go imprison some Christians, and I'm going to go here and do it. And God meets Saul and transforms him later, but... Before that happened, he kills a guy named Stephen, who was one of the top leaders in the church. And it shook the church. And I want you to see what happens in Acts 8, verse 1. It says, on that day, that's when he killed Stephen, a great persecution broke out against the church in where? 
Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was part of the progression. That's not where he wanted them to stay at. And don't you look what happens here. This is powerful. And all except the apostles were scattered. Where were they scattered? Judea and Samaria. The very thing Jesus said to them, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And they're like, that's cool, Jesus. Thank you. That sounds good. See, we think Jesus' commands are suggestions. That's how we treat it even in today. And they thought the same thing. They thought, oh, that's a really cute suggestion, Jesus. I think I'll stay in Jerusalem. <laughs> Jesus said, oh, you do. You do. No, you won't. Because either you're going to go or i got to push you out of the nest, one or the other. He wanted them to go beyond where they were at. And I want you to understand this here. The gathered church, what we do in gatherings, is only effective as the scattered church. There's two churches. There's the gathered church and the scattered church. Jerusalem was the gathered church. And Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be a scattered church because you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. Now for us today, can, can I just draw some parallels for us? Many of us are just like Jerusalem believers. We're in a bubble. We would love to go to a Christian job and have Christian co-workers drive on Christian roads with Christian other drivers with Jesus fishes, right, on, on, on their cars. We would love to listen to Christian radio and have Christian TV with Christian friends, eating Christian foods, washing Christian clothes. You laugh. But we have got so Americanized and Westernized in our Christianity that we have forgotten that what Jesus told the disciples was, this, was true for us as well. Now, I want to make a point here. I'm going to say this. I love the gathering. This is what we do here. I love this. I mean, this is what I do. I'm a pastor, y'all. I'm not against the gathering of believers. I think everybody should. Are you guys watching online? You're gathering with us. Come hang out with us sometime too physically. I think it's great. I love it. But I would do you a disservice if I only value the gathered church. Because the gathered church is only effective as the scattered church. If all we do is gather and pat each other on the back, and we never scatter and have that mentality, then we are ineffective. And many Christians are in a bubble. They don't know anybody that, that's, not, that, that's not a believer. They don't have any friends that aren't believers. They don't have anybody around them they interact with. They want to stay hidden and like a hermit. They, I mean, they want their kids to be the same way because they're scared to death of the world. And Jesus says, I, I understand those things, but I've called you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. And guys, he's calling you to do that. There are people in your life that are like you, that have similar values that God's going to call you to. But there are people who are a little bit, little bit outside of your, your bubble. He's going to call you to. Still comfortable for you. And then he's going to start calling you to make relationships and talk to people and build friendships with people who are Samaritans. You have some divides. You don't really think a lot alike. There, there, there's some value differences there. And then he's going to call you to do the hardest thing ever, the outermost parts. And God had to save this guy named Saul to see that happen because the church in Jerusalem refused to go to the Gentiles. They refused to go to the pagans. Oh my God, they worship idols. <laughs> oh Lord, you hear their language? I just can't be around those people. Oh, they just vex my soul. <laughs> Our politics are so different. Oh my Lord, you have things they watch on TV. <laughs> and, Paul, and Jesus is like, I want you to go there, the outermost parts. Those are the people I want you to interact with. And can I tell you, in America, 
if we do not wake up as Christians, it's not politics. God, get your mind out of that. It's not government. Wake up. Europe is 50 years ahead of us and Christianity is dead. Canada is 20 years ahead of us and Christianity is dead. And one of the major reasons is, is because the church in America experiences great rapid growth in the 50s and 60s and 70s and we just got all huddled up together. We got more programs and more stuff and we became so Christianized and bubbled. We got so scared of everything around us that we lost influence with any of the people around us. People, let me tell you, people that don't know Jesus need a friend who does know Jesus. To have conversations, to ask questions to. You don't have to have all the answers, but that's what they need. And so I, I want you to be the believer that is courageous, not comfortable. See, there's two churches in the book of Acts, two breakdowns. Acts 1 through 7 was a comfortable church in Jerusalem. Praising God, favor, temple courts, breaking bread and prayer. Hallelujah disobedient to Jesus. The second church was the courageous church, Acts 8 through 28. That's when the church began to go, and it began to become influential among the Roman Empire because they were willing to abate, to be scattered. And so the gathered church was comfortable while the scattered church was courageous. And that's what God's calling us to be, amen? He's calling us to be the scattered church that has courage. And so you've got to look at your life and say, am I the gathered Christian or am I the scattered Christian? Am I the Acts 1 through 7 believer or the Acts 8 through 28 believer? Because there, there's two types of believers we have in here today. And you've got to decide, am I the type of person that God, I'm going to let God use me to interact with people who are different than me, who don't believe like me, who push back against me, to be able to share the gospel. And I won't thrive church to be a courageous church, not a comfortable church. I don't want us to have Christmas programs and pat ourselves on. We have, we have services are so packed for Christmas. Our programs are great. Everybody from all the other churches came and watched our cantata. Nothing wrong with that. But if all you're doing is gathering, 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 and you're not scattering, then something's wrong. If, if you haven't known this yet, um, I have the gift. I don't comfort the afflicted. I afflict the comfortable. And so here, here's my fear, and here's what we have to understand. If we only seek the comfort of being gathered, we, will, we can't fulfill the Great Commission by being scattered. If we only want the comfort of gathering, only want the comfort of our bubble, nothing wrong with Jerusalem, nothing wrong with those things, nothing wrong with getting, I, I love getting together. You should have a circle of believers that empower you and strengthen you and that fill your life up, but you can't stay there. And if you do, guess what's going to happen? you will not fulfill the Great Commission. So, so when Jesus resurrected, he shows up to his disciples, and here's what he says to them. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He tells them to go. And that word, if you've been here at Thrive any amount of time, you know that word there is in the imperfect tense in the Greek. It's not like just go. It's not I went. You can't go to Jesus one day and say, hey, Jesus, I did that mission trip you told me to go on. Wasn't that awesome? That word go there means go and as you're going. That means on your daily route, in your daily life, make disciples. Be the scattered church wherever you go. That's called the great commission. Why is it called a commission? Because number one, Jesus commissions us to do it. Number two, it's a commission. It's us and the Lord working together in that. Amen? 
And the key to this is, if you, don't, if you don't get that, the Great Commission is where our purpose lies. And too many believers think, I don't have a purpose. I work with pastors all the time who don't like what they do anymore, and here's why. They say, I'm surrounded by Christians who complain all the time. They're unconcerned, and they never invite anybody. He said, I feel like I don't, I don't, I've not shared the gospel in years. I feel like I'm in a bubble. And you know what a lot of guys do? They quit and go out to the secular world to get around non-Christians to influence people. One of the most popular guys who did that was Francis Chan. He had a mega church. He said, I was sick of it. I just showed up and performed for people every week. I didn't know anybody who didn't know Jesus. It's like, share the gospel, go. And I didn't know anybody. And so one of the things that, that I do, and I'm actually tasked to do this in January, I've got to go talk to pastors about personal evangelism. I've got to teach them how to do it because they don't do it. They're Jerusalem guys, and I used to be that as well. Now what I do is I want to find ways I can do the Judea, Samaria, and outermost parts. And I'm always calculating, do I have those types of people in my life? Am I building relationship with them? Not as a project, not as saving some souls, but as human beings who our creator is pursuing. And am I on the commission with him to be that bridge for them? And that's what it means to live scattered and be scattered. And so here's what we have to do, guys. Write this in your notes. Don't overvalue the power of gathering over the purpose of being scattered. Don't overvalue the power of gathering over the purpose of being scattered. What you and I should be living is that scattered life. When somebody says, hey, man, how you doing? Stop saying I'm living a dream. Say, man, I'm living the scattered life. And what that means is your head is on a swivel anywhere you go. And you're understanding that you're on a commission. And at any point in time, somebody needs something about the gospel. Perfect time, guys, to do this is Christmas. Do you know Christmas and Easter? The reason we do this is not to fill our church up. Um, I'm kind of beyond that point. I, as far as like how many going to show up at Christmas, I don't know. Because frankly, my worth is not found in that. It's in Christ. Not whether or not somebody gets their butt into a seat on Sunday. Right? Here's what I'm concerned about. There are people, and over 90% of people say, I would come to church, especially on Christmas and Easter, if I was only invited by somebody that I knew. But sometimes we value the, the, the power of gathering, and we never find the purpose of being scattered. I want to change your mindset to live on mission, where everywhere you go, you understand that God is, some of you hate your job, and God's like, oh, that's your Judea, that's your Samaria, that's your outermost parts. Yeah, those people are really far from me. That's what they do. Their language is horrible. They tell terrible jokes. They think that Jesus is dumb. Like, I've been there. I've been laughed at, ridiculed, mocked, cussed at. Anything you can, you can, you can bring, I, I'll go toe-to-toe with you. And that's the very people that need Jesus. But if our value system's off, that's what's going to happen. See, the apostle Paul knew about the scattered life. He knew the pain of the scattered life. He knew the purpose of the scattered life. He never stayed anywhere too long. Matter of fact, in Acts 20, 36 through 38, Paul spent two years at the church at, at Ephesus, probably his longest tenure uh, that we believe as, uh, as we study his ministry. And he, look what happens there for the scattered life. He said when he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. 
and they all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. In verse 38, this is a scattered life. They were sad most of all because he had said they would never see him again, and they wouldn't. And they escorted him down to the ship. Paul did not overvalue the power of gathering over the purpose of being scattered. To the point, he said, send me to Rome to appeal to the highest government official I can. Get me in front of the highest government official, and I may die, but I'm going to share the gospel with him because I believe Rome can be changed by the gospel. And sure enough, a couple hundred years later, I, it's not the greatest thing ever that happened, but it did. Christianity was politicized and nationalized by Constantine. Paul had that much influence. He said, I am willing to do that. So how do you and I do that? The first thing we have to do is change our value systems. Change your value system. I'm glad you love church. You should love the church that you attend. I'm glad you love small groups. That's great, right? Isn't that all good things? But you can't keep valuing Jerusalem and valuing the favor in Jerusalem when Jesus says, I need you to go to Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. Change what you value. Many of us way overvalue gathering together. We way overvalue hanging out with Christians all the time to the point we have no influence over anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we've taught for years is this. It's a thermometer versus a thermostat. You know what a thermometer does? It just tells you the temperature, doesn't it? If you put one outside right now, it's going to tell you that it's 42 degrees outside. It just reads the environment around it, and it's, it just tells you what it is. It's affected by the environment. A thermostat is different. A thermostat not only reads the environment, but what does it do? It can change the environment. And that's what Jesus had called the early church to do, and that's what he called. He says, stop being thermometer Christians where you're scared to death. The world may just influence me. Oh, you're scared. He says, go be a thermostat where you walk in, you read the environment, and then you change the environment because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Where you walk into rooms and they change and atmospheres change just because you carry the Spirit of God in you. Change your value system. And then finally, value the harvest and the barn. Value the harvest and the barn. You know, Jesus told his disciples at one point, he said, look, the fields are white with harvest. Look at that harvest. He says, pray, because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus was all about the harvest. But it's okay to like the barn, too. You know what the barn is? This is the barn. What we're doing right now, this is the barn. I mean, that's what happened. Think about it. I was the harvest at one point. I walked into the barn. I got processed, and now I'm part of that again. I'm, I'm in the, see, my, my, my grandfather had tobacco uh, houses, right? I, I'm not, I'm not advocate. I don't like cigarettes or anything. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not, but that's what he had. This is what I, I grew up in Tobacco Road, right? So he had those. He had tobacco bars, and what they would do is they would go and pick the tobacco, and I spent many days picking all types of stuff, man. That's what I, that's what I did as a kid, right? That's what we did for fun. And we would bring it back to the barn where they would cure it at so it could be used for the purpose which they had it for, right? You see where I'm going? Same thing is true. This is the barn. The harvest is out there. The only reason you have a barn is because you have a harvest. His barns are dilapidated and broken down, and they're old, and they don't work anymore because when he died, 
They sold the field. There was no more harvest. The barn is simply here for the harvest. The problem is Christians value the barn more than they do the harvest. You know, um, when, when I was young, I was probably around seven years old, maybe eight, my, my son's age, my grandmother told me and my friend she was cooking lunch to go outside and play and leave her alone. Dangerous for little boys, right? We went and we went to my grandfather's tobacco barns and we dug holes and the GI Joe men and then we had the bright idea, and I don't know, kids just don't think, we just started tearing up his tobacco barn with tobacco sticks. Tobacco sticks are strong, right? I mean, tearing through it, poking, I mean, just, and my grandmother came out to get us for lunch. She saw what happened. And she was like, what? And she was just going crazy. I mean, she was, I mean, she, she didn't, she didn't spank me. I was always grand, grandpa. And so she said, you just wait till your grandpa gets home. He gets home. And I'm scared to death. We go out there. He looks at all the damage. And then he says, did they touch the harvest? He will know was the tobacco. T-. He said, I can fix the barn. That tobacco is, well, that's the re- Many of us value the barn way more than we value the harvest. And friends, God's called us to go out and to bring the harvest in, to go out into the harvest field. You say, well, I don't know enough, Kevin. I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know. You don't need any of that. All you've got to do is be willing to keep your head on a swivel and know that every day you walk out, the Holy Spirit's trying to use you to impact lives. Friends, let's let's make a a commitment here at Thrive. Let's be a scattered church instead of just a gathered church. Amen? We we got got one week to Christmas, and there are people who would never come to church that will come during Christmas. I don't care if they come to this church or another church. It does not matter. Invite. Spur somebody on. Pray for somebody, because again, the fields are white with harvest. The laborers are few. And the laborers have the wrong value system. So what's our progression as a scattered church? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. That's what God's called us to. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to you, Lord. We thank you for being able to gather together. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who is with us today as we worship. We thank you, Lord, for other Christians who encourage us. But God, may we never forget the, the commission, Lord, the commission you've called us on. It's a go. And as we're going, make disciples. I pray, Father, every person in here would live the scattered life. That you would begin to help them to see people who are hurting, people who are angry, people who are depressed, people, Lord God, who are in broken situations, that they would be cues for us to share the gospel with. And God, I pray that we would see the power of the scattering, Lord as we go out to our daily lives. And I ask God, send people in their path, Lord. And I pray that there's people in here, Lord God, who have no Christian friends, who are caught up in a Christian bubble, that, Lord, you would convict them and call them and give them courage to go out and be Christ to a world that needs it, Father. And God, during the seasons we celebrate the birth of your son, there are people who are open to the message of the gospel. There are people who are open to coming to church, God, put them in our path, then give us the understanding, ability, and courage to invite them. And we pray out of all of this, people would come to know you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And as we're praying today, church, at this moment of prayer, maybe you've been hearing this message today, and your first step is just being part of the harvest, being part of the gathering, 
which is giving your life to Jesus. Maybe you did as a child, you walked away from your faith, or maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I don't know what situation you're in, but today I think you know God's calling you to surrender your life to Him, to give your life to Christ. And that's you today. It's simple. I want you to pray this prayer after me. And you say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit I need the Savior. Today, I make Jesus my Lord. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again on the third day. And I give my life to him. I repent. I turn from my old life. I receive new life. I receive forgiveness of sin. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's celebrate everybody who made that decision today. Amen.